This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Criminal breach of trust, or CBT, is a term we've been hearing a lot lately in light of various corruption charges involving high-profile politicians. But what exactly is CBT? And why is money laundering always mentioned in CBT-related reports? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Raymond Ram. He's a Secretary General of Transparency International Malaysia. He's also a Certified Fraud Examiner. Welcome to the show, Raymond. Let's start from the top. What is a Criminal Breach of Trust, or CBT? Thank you, Darshan. Thank you for having me. Now, when we talk about uh, Criminal Breach of Trust, or for short, CBT, it's basically misappropriation of assets which a person has been entrusted with. Now, taking advantage of properties put under their custody for a given time, and of course, ultimately converting those properties to their personal benefit. Now, in a broader definition of that, an offender dishonestly misappropriates or converts to his own property or dishonestly uses or disposes of that property in violation of the direction of law, prescribing the mode of such trust is to be discharged. Now, this particular um, offence of criminal breach of trust or CBT, right, is covered under Section 405 of our Penal Code. Right. Now, to, to specify what is exactly mentioned within that particular section, it states it's, it provides that any person in any manner entrusted with property or with any dominion over property, either solely or jointly, dishonestly misappropriate or converts to his own use, that property commits the, uh, this particular offence. Right. We, when you mention property, we think of houses, um, you know, uh, condominiums, things like yeah. that. Um, what does property mean in this context? Now, when we say property here, we're not only defining real estate per se. It could be any form of asset, right? So it could also be cash or any other, you know, fixed assets that, that a company or organisation may have. Now, if a person is trusted to be the custodian of those particular assets, and they misuse them or converts them for their own personal use. That is what we, we define as a breach of trust, per se. Right. So what are the elements that make up criminal breach of trust, the offence? Now, when we look at particular elements under uh, the section, per se, right, when we say you're committing an offence under CBT, we look at three things, all right? Three key issues here. Number one, the agency capacity of the accused. Now, what I mean by that is this. The capacity of an individual to act independently and make their own free choices. Number two, we look at the property, whether the property was entrusted to the accused and has a dominion. Now, when we say dominion, what I mean is ruling or controlling power over that particular property. Number three, did the accused convert that subject property for his own use? Because this will then prove the criminal intention. Right, so these are the basic issues that we talk about when we we come towards uh, mentioning or bringing a case to court when it comes to CBT. Uh, just to summarize that, mm-hmm. five uh, basic ideas that we need to keep in mind every time we talk about uh, criminal breach of trust: entrusted or entrustment of a person, number uh, property, dishonest or the criminal intention, misappropriation, and of course converting. 
So I think with, with that five elements that we have in mind, we can understand where this whole uh, idea of criminal breach of trust comes along. Right. Um, you mentioned dishonours. What does dishonours mean? Because that dishonours as a word can be rather vague, right? So I believe uh, when we say dishonours, we're talking about behaving deceitful or untrustworthy with the intention to mislead or cheat. Right. So, so you are in a way defrauding another party in that sense. Right. Right. Now, when I was doing some research on this, right, Raymond, um, I came uh, across uh, a couple of terms called wrongful gain and wrongful loss. What can you tell us uh, about these terms? I mean, the term wrongful itself simply means against the law, right? right. So wrongful gain would mean uh, unlawful means of property to which a person is gaining and they are not legally entitled to it. And when we say wrongful loss, on the other hand, of course, losing properties that they're not entitled to lose in the first place, right? Because they are the custodians of it. They're supposed to protect these particular properties that they have under their custody. Right, right. So, um, Raymond, when would it be, you know, criminal as opposed to just a, a mere civil breach of trust or, or breach of contracts? How, how do you distinguish um, both of these aspects? That's a very interesting question, actually. So when we talk about uh, criminal breach of trust, we always say criminal breach of trust. There's right. also civil breach of trust, right? Mm -hmm. So under civil law, a breach of trust occurs when a person breaches their duty, which is imposed by a trust instrument. So take, for example, a will by statute or by common law, right? So certain examples here would be when an executor of a estate pursuant to a will or the directors in disregard of the company do not fulfill their obligations as per that particular contract. And on the other hand, if we talk about criminal offence of breach of trust, this is contained within Section 405, which I mentioned just now, under the Penal Code, and also Section 409, if we're talking about a public official being right. in that particular position. Now, it's also worthy to note when we talk about civil and criminal, there are four main differences here. Number one, who initiates the legal proceedings, right? Is it a public prosecutor? Right? Is it the state against the person? Then that's a criminal of, that's a criminal uh, case altogether. If it's a civil case, it's between two individuals, and we look at the uh, we, we look at who was right or who was wrong and who did not discharge their particular obligations. Number two, we look at the burden or standard of proof. Now, these are elements that need to be proven in court in order to find someone either innocent or guilty. Right. So when we talk about a civil case, the burden of proof is much lower. We look into the balance of probability, who has more evidence to prove that they are indeed in the right position. On the other hand, if we look at a criminal offence, the burden of proof is much higher. It's beyond reasonable doubt. There is no way that anyone else could have committed this offence or could have committed this particular act. It has to be this particular individual. So it's very hard to prove. You need the proper evidence in a sense of a a witness witness statements or either documents that can prove such uh, such acts. Number three is the existence of mens rea. Now, the existence of mens rea, mens rea simply means the guilty mind or the corrupt intention. Right. We, we cannot, in any criminal case, there must be two things. There must be mens rea and actus rea. Mens rea is the intention to act corruptly or to act wrongly. Actus rea is the action itself. Right? Without proving these two elements, you cannot prove a crime per se. And number four is, of course, the penalty. Right. When we talk about uh, civil civil cases, the penalty is basic. Penalty is usually damages. Damages to a particular party, right? 
When we talk about criminal offences, on the other hand, we look at fines, probations, even imprisonment to some extent. Right. So let's get uh, uh, a little bit deeper into that. Um, talk to me, Raymond, about the sentencing norms and precedents when it comes to criminal bre- breach of trust, um, especially here in Malaysia. I mean, if you look at uh, criminal, right, mm-hmm. the criminal uh, CBT, if the court finds a person guilty of a criminal breach of trust, the court may order the guilty person to recompensate victims of the offence and or the court for the cost of prosecution upon the application of the public prosecutor. Now, although the decision on how much compensation will be awarded lies with the court and varies from case to case, right? This does not prelude the victim of a criminal breach of trust from proceedings to file separate civil proceedings against guilty person to recover damages as well. Now, of course, when we focus only on the civil part or civil breach of trust, the remedies for breach of trust in civil proceedings can either be personal or proprietary. Now, what do I mean by personal or proprietary? It simply means you can pursue an action against the person who breached the trust or the person with whom the trust property has eventually ended up with. Right? So there's, there's two options there. On the show with me today is Raymond Ram, Secretary General at Transparency International Malaysia. After the break, I ask him about money laundering. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Raymond Ram, Secretary General at Transparency International Malaysia. And we're doing a 101 on CBT, which is Criminal Breach of Trust. So what I find very interesting, right, Raymond, is that whenever there are news reports on criminal breach of trust, there is also usually mention of money laundering in these reports. What's the connection between money laundering and CBT? I mean, uh, simply put, criminal proceeds are bound to be laundered, right? Right. There is no way otherwise if the same is to be spent openly without question, right? Because we need to know where your source of funds are. Now, money laundering is a process of converting cash or property derived from such criminal activities to give it a legitimate appearance. And it is a process simply for dirty money to be cleaned and to disguise that it came from a criminal origin. Now, of course, there is a process to this. We have the basic uh, steps of placement, layering, integration. In many cases that you see, the idea is this. When when there is an offense of money laundering, there is always a predicate offense. They are also known under our Amlapwa to be serious offenses. One of those serious offenses is criminal breach of trust, meaning I have now procured money from illegal means and I'm trying to clean it in order to disguise or deceive everyone, deceive everyone where I got the money from, right? So, right. so that's basically the idea, and that's why every time you see a serious offense, there is also money laundering. There is no way that uh, money or property can be derived and just be used openly like that without question. Right. You mentioned amla. What exactly is amla? Now, the, uh, when, when we say AMLA in Malaysia, we are referring to the Anti-Money Laundering, Anti-Terrorism Financing and Proceeds of Unlawful Activity Act 2001. Now, I understand that is a mouthful. We call it AMLA <laughs> right? Right. So, and and it has, it has uh, actually evolved since 2001. We had AMLA, AMLA now AMLA Now, the idea here is, it is a Malaysian law enacted to provide for the offence of money laundering 
the measures to be taken also for prevention of money laundering and terrorism financing offences and to provide for forfeiture of property involved that are derived from such activities as well as terrorist properties or proceeds of unlawful activities and instrumentalities of an offence in a matter of incidental thereto or connected therewith. Now, to make things, uh, to, to simplify that particular explanation, the idea is simple. We are trying to criminalize the act of cleaning dirty money. And not only that, we are also putting uh, the pressure of compliance on reporting institutions in Malaysia to make sure that they conduct proper KYC, proper know your customer policies, make sure they know who they're doing business with, where they know where the source of funds of these particular individuals are from, and also to raise suspicious transaction reports when they see something is amiss. Um, something, uh, certain transactions or certain people doing business that would have red flags of the act of money laundering per se. Um, when we look at AMLA, the, the law, right? Like you said, it's a mouthful. They talk about anti-money laundering and they talk about counter-financing of terrorism. Now, yeah. some people might be confused and wondering, what does terrorism and money laundering, why is it all under the same sort of law? Perhaps you can um, explain that a little bit. Okay, let's go first to money laundering. Right. Money laundering, you have the source of funds from an illegal activity. Right. Simple as that, right? And the idea is a circular process where I now take money from an illegal activity. I would need to clean it. I need to place it in either in a financial institution or in companies, get, uh, mix it together with legit income and later layer it through offshore accounts and integrate it back to my pocket right to the criminal's pocket itself. So it's a circular process that you clean your money, it comes back to the, uh, to the criminal's pocket. Right. Terrorism financing, on the other hand, is a linear process where we are now either taking legit or illegitimate funds and directing it towards the wrong parties. The idea is saying you're still disguising where it is going, but the ultimate objective is not to come back to the pocket of the person who started it. It is to direct it towards state, uh, I mean, state actors who are acting, I mean, wrongly, who are dealing with terrorist property or in terrorist activity and whatnot. Right. So there's two ways of looking at it, but why is it parked under the same act? Because the ultimate idea is trying to disguise using various vehicles that we have either through the financial institutions or to various businesses in order to disguise where it's either moving towards or coming from. Right. Raymond, what exactly is the impact um, when we talk about either CBT or money laundering? What is the impact of um, these acts of uh, crime when it comes to, to when you know, the impact towards the country, impact towards the people, so on and so forth? I mean, uh, we can see through many developing countries as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we let money laundering get rampant and we do not crack down on this, we're going to see the rise in many various other crimes, right? Not only blue collar crime, but I'm also talking about financial crime per se. Now you have a corruption that can be done openly and later monies can be just used like just like that. And you can also have a fraud or many other tax evasion or other different offenses that can be done very easily. And later those gains from these offenses or these activities can be used without any repercussions. So, of course, increase in overall rate of crime that could threaten national security. Number two, you could also look into inhibiting the growth and competitiveness of economy 
Now, why do I say this? Is because you got you have now an inflow of dirty money. Right. So obviously, we're going to have uh, the, the the part of growth and competition is neglected, right? Hmm. Because we we cannot compete with the inflow of such funds. And number three, it of course taints at the integrity, reputation of our businesses and our financial institutions, and ultimately increasing the cost of doing business as well. Right. Earlier, you mentioned something interesting and you mentioned that, um, you know, when it comes to money laundering and all, one of the things people do is they can, you know, park their money in offshore accounts. What exactly are offshore accounts? Is this where, um, when we look at, let's say, Pandora Papers last year and things like that, we talk about um, the ultra-wealthy and and politicians and the elite class hiding their money in other countries. Is that what offshore account means? Okay, it is not illegal to set up an offshore account. Right. But it has been misused because these offshore accounts, I mean, for example, the BBI, Seychelles and whatnot, it is being misused because of their level of secrecy that uh, that can be protected because those countries rely on such income. So when that happens, they do not disclose information of beneficial owners of accounts who ben- I mean, who are the main uh, individuals sitting behind those bank accounts that have been set up, either even businesses that have been set up there. There's no way for you to check. There's no way for people. They would not cooperate in providing information. That is that is the main idea of setting up a, an offshore account per se. But like I said, it's not illegal to set one up. But like you also clearly pointed out, we have seen time and time again the uh the Pandora papers, the Panama papers or Paradise papers that have been coming out. Right. It has continuously shown that the ultra wealthy uh politicians or even uh celebrities misusing these vehicles or these such accounts to hide their illegal gains. Hence it becomes the part a part of the money laundering process per se. Hence why it's become so attractive. Raven, this might be a bit of a basic question, right? For But for the common person listening, right? They're, they're reading all these reports and, and talking about how rich people, um, you know, are hiding their wealth and, and so on and so forth. Um, why is this allowed to happen? Why is this allowed to happen? I mean, simply put, um, for me, I mean, again, as a certified fraud examiner, right. I've worked with, uh, with the law enforcement, I've worked with the private sector, now, we have seen is it's not about allowing it to happen. We have the laws. I won't say we do not have the laws. Mm. We have the enforcement agencies to look into the matters. But the rate or the advancement of technology and the ways that things can happen at the moment, the ways monies can be laundered, uh, the instruments that can be used are far-reaching and it's accelerating much faster than we can adopt. Right? So we all we always two steps behind criminals. Right. Like it or not, because they adopt technology openly with no restrictions and they tend to commit their acts in a various modus operandi and we catch up when we see certain cases come about. So so in that sense, I would say that it's accelerating because one of the main reasons is because of the use of technology as well. Right, right. So, you know, on the I think it's on a similar note of offshore accounts. Another mm-hmm. aspect I want to... Um, pick your brain about is shell companies. What exactly are shell companies? Simply put, uh, shell companies, again, I won't say it's legal or illegal, but most of the time it's used for illegal purposes. These are $2 or inactive companies, right? right? Which are used as a vehicle for various financial maneuvers. And of course, it's kept dormant until a certain point where the criminal or the corrupt individual would like to use it. 
right? So, and like I said before, my laundering, there's two ways. You can either use financial, uh, the financial institutions that provide different instruments that you can purchase and move monies around. You can also use businesses. Now, shell companies can be used to launder funds. But to look at a more basic or foundational level of why shell companies are set up, it has been set up before, even through uh, many cases that we've seen abroad. It has been set up for certain billing schemes of fraud per se, right. right? Because you can use these shell companies as a medium to siphon off funds. So if you connect this to criminal breach of trust, now I'm in a position of power within the organization. I would be able to use these shell companies to issue fake invoices or to issue fake documentation showing services have been provided or even go to an extent of signing dubious uh, JV agreements. And this would give me a chance to siphon out funds. And with this, when these monies are siphoned out, I would then launder them through various other instruments and it would come back to my pocket. And very interestingly, we see the cases that have been happening in Malaysia and elsewhere. Most of the time, the names of these companies are very similar to those that are well-known legitimate companies to deceive what they're actually doing behind right. the scenes. Right. But you also mentioned that, you know, just like, you know, offshore accounts, um, when it comes to shell companies, it's difficult to say whether, you know, e legal or illegal. Yeah. Technically, in, at its core, it may not be something illegal. But why not? Is it because, you know, when you boil it down, there's nothing wrong? Like, let's say if I have I come across this word called uh, Tinky Winky and I decide, oh, I want to just register that as a company yeah. and I'll just go to the department and I just register and say like, okay, la, like, I, I want to just have this as a as a backup company in case one yeah. day I want to start some food business. Think that to this thing that it's best we distinct it to through two ways here. One is shell companies and one are shell companies. Okay. Right? Different spelling here. So shelf companies and shell companies. Shelf companies are those that you, like you said, you started up a firm. I would want to use it later. Right. I'm not sure. I just want to retain the name. On paper, everything's in order. I'll file the right papers, but I want to keep it with me first. That's shelf companies. Now, shell companies, on the other hand, it's usually misused. It's usually used as a vehicle for financial crime or to, to basically uh, carry on the modus operandi either to defraud the institution or to either launder funds. So we can distinguish in two senses here in, in, in uh, both of these different definitions. Right, right. Okay. So moving on, right, what exactly is the penalty in Malaysia for money laundering? Uh, simply put, if you look under section 4 of AMLA, the, the one that was mm -hmm. uh, quite long earlier, but we shortened it to AMLA, any person who commits an offence of money laundering shall on conviction be liable to an imprisonment of about up to 15 years and fine minimum five times the value of the money or five million, whichever higher. So you can see the, the penalties are quite stiff. It is quite high. And then again, we are, when we say money laundering offense, it covers all three phases I mentioned just now. Replacement, layering or integration. It can be any part of this process. So, for instance, even if you're breaking up a huge sum of money and placing them in different institutions for you to launder them later, you're already part of committing a money laundering offence. So, we've got to be very careful when we look at this. Right. Raymond, um, you mentioned that the laws are already pretty stiff. Um, when you look at um, Malaysian laws as it is currently, do we need to strengthen 
our laws in, when it comes to these areas. We're talking about CBT, money laundering. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it a matter of implementation of these laws or a matter of how certain individuals have gotten so powerful um, that the they can you know they have found ways to to go around the law for for many many years and, and things like that. What exactly is the the problem in in Malaysia? Yeah, uh, let's look at it globally. Right, where we are lead, going towards globally because we are in now a global village. Right, we right. can't talk about only being in Malaysia or we can't talk only about Malaysian laws per se because we are interconnected to some extent. Now, in recognition of the increasing threats of money laundering and terrorism financing per se in recent years. Now, many countries, including Malaysia, have intensified their efforts to develop and maintain a proper AML-CFT regime. Okay, it is in place and we see where the direction is going towards. However, at Transparency International, we believe that there are certain reforms that need to take place. Okay, Mm. especially when we look at the act of money laundering. Like I said, one primary concern, me personally as well, is also transparency of beneficial ownership. Now, to, to make to simplify what I mean by transparency or beneficial ownership, we need to know who is the ultimate owner of companies, right? Because you can have uh, shareholders, director names all placed on SSM, on the right. uh, Companies Commission of Malaysia, their names are there. But most of the time, these are proxy names or these are those that have been appointed by other corrupt individuals or things like that to sit on those companies where the ultimate beneficial owner is another person. Is that technically legal are you allowed to put proxy names and and whoever uh, uh, made up names or just your grandfather and, and random people when you when you register end a company of the day, end of the day i mean it's not illegal to put i mean anyone can can own a company right right anyone can own a company anyone can own shares so now we're saying that even if you put your for instance i'll put my driver's name as right. a director right it's fine okay. but if i'm trying to hide what I'm doing with the company or who the ultimate beneficial owner is, then that is wrong. Right. Now, when I say that is wrong, we need to have certain amendments done to our company's act. We need to have certain laws that strengthens the transparency of beneficial ownership. Now, if you look at the European Union or the EU, right, they have already mandated for a, a beneficial ownership registry, which is publicly available to everyone. That means company secretaries has the duty to find out if there are any beneficial owners, report them back to the commission, and it needs to be publicly available to everyone to see. But in Malaysia, we do not have that yet. Of course, the company's commission is looking towards having a beneficial ownership registry, but their idea at the moment is to have it only for law enforcement's use, not for the public or not for financial institutions and whatnot. So we would still not be able to see who are the main people sitting behind these companies. Right. And when we do not know who is ultimately benefiting, then we 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 have uh, uh, an opportunity, especially for corrupt individuals, to now hide behind these companies, bring in monies, and also use them or launder them as they see fit. Before we wrap this conversation up, Raymond, um, would you have some final thoughts or a final message with, uh, for us with regard to CBT and money laundering? Just to, to summarize things, I believe uh, we have to understand why many cases that we see now are looking towards uh, uh, charging under money laundering and then looking at the serious offense. Because the idea is we could seize assets, we could freeze accounts, and then go after what are the offenses that's been perpetrated by uh, individuals. Many of the cases now we see are related to corruption. And right. 
Of course, if you are a high-level politician or high-level individual, high-level executive, you cannot be being you cannot be corrupt, receive funds and go use it uh, outside just like that. That's why we need to look at seizing those funds first and then going after the predicate offense. And future direction, I believe, is we need to strengthen a number of laws in Malaysia. Number one, I mentioned just now, is the transparency of beneficial ownership. Number two, we also need to strengthen the Whistleblower Protection Act that we have. Right. right? We have the WPA 2010. That's very important for us to protect whistleblowers because the main uh, source of information or the main reason why investigations are triggered is because we have whistleblowers coming forth with information. With, without providing proper protection or giving them or encouraging them to come forward, we would not have these uh, problems uh, go away per, per se. Right. right. So these are some of the things that I like yes, before we end. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dushan. Thank you for having me. That was Raymond Ram, Secretary General at Transparency International Malaysia, giving me the 101 on CBT. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.